Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode number 35. Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen. Mrs. Eyre, Miss Morland, allow me to present to you Mr. Henry Tilly, just lately arrived in Bath. Mrs. Allen, Miss Morland, delighted to make your acquaintance. Mr. King. Now we may talk to one another. We've already been talking. You mustn't allow anyone to hear you say such things. We shall all be expelled from polite society. Let it be our secret. And now, if your card is not already full, Miss Morland, might I request the pleasure of the next dance with you? With me? Thank you. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we will take a thorough look at one piece of literature we have both read and determine whether it's worthy of its reputation and, dare I say it, its requirement of reading. Here I am, dearest Stella, and I met this young whippersnapper in the pump room just the other day, and I thought we could have a good yaw about this particular book. It is Tom Panarese. Hello. <laughs> oh my gosh. Do you think we could take this on the road and you could be my straight man? Well, I'm definitely a straight man. Oh my um, goodness. Uh, probably, I don't know. <laughs> Just basically, it would be basically me staying silent, staring at you long enough to see if you can break. That's it's true. You do <laughs> you do stare at me, wondering when I will end. Basically, whatever shenanigans yeah. I've I've yeah come up with. <laughs> uh, well, how are you? I'm good. A little tired. We were talking off air. Of course. Um, it's the school year is in full swing now, so it's yeah. just getting used to that rhythm of classes and grading and planning and everything else absolutely yeah but we are in pumpkin spice season which is one of my favorite seasons of the year mm. see i am not a uh i mean i'll make fun of you because that's fun but i i mean i honestly am indifferent because i actually don't like pumpkin spice things you like any pumpkin things 
Oh, I love pumpkin. I love pumpkin, like pumpkin pie and stuff. But like some of the pumpkin spice, like the pumpkin spice latte tastes a little too licorice to me. And I don't okay. like, um, I don't like the flavor of licorice. But like some, there, there's a couple, like uh, Trader Joe's has a pumpkin <gasps> version of their the JoJo's cookies. Yes, yes. Yeah. Those are really, really good. But like a pumpkin spice latte is not my, um, is not my choice of it's drink at Starbucks. Bag, it's too. Baby. Yeah. No, I, not my I bag. I understand that. Yeah. But yeah. there are so many pumpkin things to find, you know, mm-hmm. at Wegmans. They've got the pumpkin-covered almonds and the pumpkin-covered pretzels. And yeah. you've got pumpkin ice yeah. cream that you can go get to. It's intense. But, mm. And if you're not careful, if you don't have self-control, you could probably gain 15 to 20 pounds. Yeah, this is true. Now, I if I'm going for pumpkin-based desserts, I will go with uh, – my wife makes a really good pumpkin bread. Then there's, uh, of course, pumpkin pie. So those are kind of my two choice. I'm a Thanksgiving is one of my favorite holidays. Oh, so, okay. and then there's Christmas, of course, and I will indulge in a peppermint mocha at Starbucks. Ah, um, probably like okay. once or twice, but even then I can't. I have to get like a tall or, or something because I, I it, they get really sweet toward the bottom and really heavy. Sure. So I get that. Yeah, yeah. The people who have the venties every day, I don't know how they do it. Unless they get a triple, well, unless they're. You're, I don't know if I mentioned this on the show here. Or probably have. Years ago, I, I, I part-timed at Starbucks <gasps> as, a, as a coffee monkey. And, um, Is that an I actual never made term? It. No, I just never took the test to fully become a barista or whatever oh, it was okay. at the time. Now, I don't know if they've changed it since then, but back then, the only difference between a grande and a venti drink was milk because oh. they had the same amount of – they had the same amount of espresso. So if you wanted caffeine out of a venti, you ordered a venti with an extra shot of espresso because you huh. get three shots. Yeah. So it's kind of a scam they were running, I guess. I don't mm-hmm. know. People really thought that the, they were basically drinking – they were ordering more milk in their latte. Gotcha. And even then, I like cappuccinos better. Sure. I'm sure yeah. that – I mean some people know that I don't I don't imbibe with the coffee. But I did when I was in Europe. I did. And those cappuccinos were great. But then when you come over here, it's like, ooh. I, I will – yeah. So I will say I – God, it's it's been 16 years since I was last in Europe, but we went to Paris on our honeymoon, and the cappuccinos and the cafes that we would go to were just outstanding. Yeah. Greenberries does a good cappuccino, I will say. Okay. Our local coffee shop, yeah. yeah so I had a few of those while I was waiting for the camp bus. <laughs> oh, that's right. This yes, year. The yeah, camp so. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, so coffee. the reason yeah, I know the reason why we're doing this, of coffee course, talk. this particular, we're you know we are in fall. Halloween is on its way. As we record this, I'm about to go see it, Chapter Two, with my mom Z. We'll see if I make it back alive, at, or has she strangled me because I've caused her to endure this experience? But mm. it was great for Tom to sacrifice and actually give me back the holidays because he has had it for mm. like five years in a row. So we've only uh, been recording for like three, Stella. Whatever you say. <laughs> sort of gaslighting is this. <laughs> My timeline runs differently than yours. So I, I guess so. Are you damned at Theo? Yeah, I finally got <laughs> your timeline. Whatever. Shush, shush. I finally got back the holidays and I knew that I wanted to do this gothic romance. Really, it's a satire. But I was just waiting for the perfect time. And it's now. So, yes, we are doing Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen. So, of course, we have to talk about our histories with the book. I can already tell what Tom's history is. But, Tom, enlighten us. 
Well, this is the first time I've read this book. This is the third Jane Austen book that I've ever read. So it's not my first exposure to Jane Austen. Okay. What my are first, the other two? Um, Sense and Sensibility. I was assigned as a freshman in college. And Emma was the other one. And I've been assigned that. I was assigned that two or three times over the course of my four years of college. My professors loved Emma for some reason. Out of the two, I preferred Emma more, probably because I am a big fan of the movie Clueless. Ah, oh, okay. Makes sense. Yeah. So, no, this was my third Jane Austen novel. Um, we do own a copy of Pride and Prejudice, and I think Persuasion uh. upstairs. Um, I know we have Pride and Prejudice. So Okay. Because um, yeah. Amanda had to read those for, for the classes in college as well. Oh, okay. She was an English major gotcha. at UPA. So. That makes sense. Yeah. This was my first foray into Jane Austen, actually, which I think is rather interesting of, you know, of all the novels you could have done, mm -hmm. this would be it. But it actually makes sense time-wise because it was one of the first ones she actually wrote, just one of the last ones that were published. Mm. And I read it for an Enlit class, English literature class, which was, mm -hmm. uh, can't remember the full title of it, but I definitely know it was Realism in fiction i think it was mm -hmm. and i read this and ethan Frome and the mm -hmm. alchemist and glenn gary glenn ross well i remember practically all of them and i loved it this is actually my favorite austin novel and i have i believe i've read all of them with the exception of lady susan because my sister-in-law got me the tome that collects all of them so i read them all my third oh, okay. lady, lady susan unless i have read lady susan but it's just that um, forgettable, though I did see the movie with Kate Beckinsale. So anyways, of all of them, though, because I know, you know, Pride and Prejudice is really lauded as, as the number one. I think that's what people always remember her for. But this one is happens to be my favorite just because of the wit involved. And I think that um, mm -hmm. it's good fun. And I think because I really love, you know, Rebecca, which is kind of gothic romance and Jane Eyre and all of that, that I'm really understanding where Jane Austen is going to and, and you know, what she's making fun of in, in that genre. Oh, Jane Eyre a little less because I think that was deeper than some of the, you know, mysteries of Judolfo and, and Monk and all of those things that Jane Austen is actually making fun of. But because I like that genre, I think that's why I like this so much. So, so I guess we'll just get into it and talk about the actual author Thress. Is that such a mm -hmm. word? Authress? I guess so. Okay, we'll just say it is. And we'll then, of course, the, the plot summary as well. So Jane Austen, I went to BBC and, and looked at this. Jane Austen was born on December 16th, 1775, in the village of Steventon in Hampshire. She was one of eight children of a clergyman and grew up in a close-knit family. So we get a good sense of that with uh, Pride and Prejudice and everything. She began to write as a teenager, and in 1801, the family moved to Bath. So there are several novels that actually have sections of or wholly take place in Bath. After the death of Jane's father in 1805, Jane, her sister Cassandra, and their mother moved several times, eventually settling in Chawton near Steventon. Jane's brother Henry helped her negotiate with the publisher, and her first novel, Sense and Sensibility, appeared in 1811. 
Her next novel, Pride and Prejudice, which she described as her own darling child, in quotes, received highly favorable reviews. Mansfield Park was published in 1814, then Emma in 1816. Emma was dedicated to the Prince Regent, an admirer of her work, and all of Jane Austen's novels were published anonymously, which probably for good reason, right? Well, I should say it that way. Uh, probably because she would have had trouble since she was a woman, perhaps. But I need to look into the mystery of Udolfo's. That I, I would like to know more about that particular author, authoress. In 1816, Jane began to suffer from ill health, probably due to Addison's disease. She traveled to Winchester to receive treatment and died there on July 18th, 1817. And two more novels, Persuasion and Northanger Abbey, were published posthumously, and a final novel was left incomplete. With Northanger Abbey in particular, she wrote this rather early on, but then there was such a gap. I did have something, if I can find this. Uh, there was such a gap um, in time that when it was actually published, she made a remark that that it was obsolete, almost some of the references and things like that, so she had to change some of the things that actually happened. Oh, hmm. yes, here it is. Though Northanger Abbey, this is a book that I got after that because I became, after this because I became intrigued, even more intrigued with goth gothic romances. It's called Love, Mystery, and Misery, Feeling in Gothic Fiction. Uh, it's a set of essays and things like that. So here, where was I here? Uh, though Northanger Abbey was not published in 1818 with Persuasion, we know that she began it in the late 1790s and had it ready for publication by 1803. It did not appear then, and 13 years later she wrote her authorial advertisement reminding her readers that some of the places, manners, books, and opinions in it had, quote, undergone considerable changes since the writing and that some parts of the work were already comparatively obsolete. Especially like the list of novels and things like that that she was mentioning. So there you go. So early on, so this is what we'll talk about potentially her style since it was, you know, little baby Jane Austen and compared to adult or teenager Jane Austen. I'm calling her baby, but really I mean baby as an author. So Yeah. yeah. So that's it. So I guess okay. we'll get now into this plot synopsis. I thank you, Wikipedia, because I am a lazy person. And uh, I appreciate Give that, that Wikipedia has provided me with this summary. So here we go. 17-year-old Catherine Morland is one of 10 children of a country clergyman. Although a tomboy in her childhood, hashtag me too. That way that doesn't work. But really, me too, because, okay. By the age of 17, she is in training for a heroine and is excessively fond of reading Gothic novels, among which Anne Radcliffe's Mysteries of Udolpho is a favorite. Catherine is invited by the Allens, her wealthier neighbors in Fullerton, to accompany them to visit the town of Bath and partake in the winter season of balls, theater, and other social delights. She is soon introduced to a clever young gentleman, Henry Tilney, with whom she dances and converses. Through Mrs. Allen's old school friend, Mrs. Thorpe, she meets her daughter, Isabella, a vivacious and flirtatious young woman, and the two quickly become friends. Mrs. Thorpe's son, John, is also a friend of Catherine's older brother, James, at Oxford, where they are both students. The Thorpes are not happy about Catherine's friendship with the Tilneys, as they correctly perceive Henry as a rival for Catherine's affections, though Catherine is not at all interested in the crude John Thorpe. Catherine tries to maintain her friendships with both the Thorpes and the Tilneys, although John Thorpe continuously tries to sabotage her relationship with the Tilneys. This leads to several misunderstandings, which put Catherine in the awkward position of having to explain herself multiple times to the Tilneys. 
Isabella and James become engaged. James' father approves of the match and offers his son a country parson's living of a modest sum, about 400 pounds annually, but they must wait until he can obtain the benefits in two and a half years. Isabella is dissatisfied, but to Catherine she misinterprets her distress as being caused solely by the delay and not by the value of the sum. Isabella immediately begins to flirt with Captain Tilney, so not it's Henry's brother. Henry's older brother, innocent Catherine, cannot understand her friend's behavior, but Henry understands all too well as he knows his brother's character and habits. The Tilneys invite Catherine to stay with them for a few weeks at their home, Northanger Abbey. <gasps> Catherine, in accordance with her novel reading, expects the Abbey to be exotic and frightening. Henry teases her about this, as it turns out that Northanger Abbey is pleasant and decidedly not gothic. However, the house includes a mysterious suite of rooms that no one ever enters. Catherine learns that they were the apartments of Mrs. Tilney, who died nine years earlier. As General Tilney no longer appears to be ill-affected by her death, Catherine decides that he may have murdered her or even imprisoned her in her chamber. It seems realistic. It seems likely. Catherine discovers that her overactive imagination has led her astray, as nothing is strange or distressing in the apartment. Unfortunately, Henry questions her. He surmises and informs her that his father loved his wife in his own way and was truly upset by her death. She leaves crying, fearing that she has lost Henry's regard entirely. Realizing how foolish she has been, Catherine comes to believe that, though novels may be delightful, their content does not relate to everyday life. Henry does not mention this incident to her again. James writes to inform her that he has broken off his engagement to Isabella and that she has become engaged instead to Captain Tilney. Henry and Eleanor Tilney are skeptical that their brother has actually become engaged to Isabella Thorpe. Catherine is terribly disappointed, realizing what a dishonest person Isabella is. A subsequent letter from Isabella herself confirms the Tilney siblings' doubts and shows that Frederick Tilney was merely flirting with Isabella. The general goes off to London, and the atmosphere at Northanger Abbey immediately becomes lighter and pleasanter for his absence. Catherine passes several enjoyable days with Henry and Eleanor until, in Henry's absence, the general sends a letter and forces Catherine to go home early the next morning in a shocking, inhospitable, and unsafe move that forces Catherine to undertake the 70 miles, or 110 kilometer, journey alone. At home, Catherine is listless and unhappy. Henry pays a sudden, unexpected visit and explains what happened. General Tilney, on the misinformation of John Thorpe, had believed her to be exceedingly rich as the Allen's prospective heiress, and therefore a proper match for Henry. In London, General Tilney ran into John Thorpe again, who, angry and petty at Catherine's refusal of his half-made proposal of marriage, said instead that she was nearly destitute. Enraged, General Tilney, again on the misinformation of John Thorpe, sent a messenger to Northanger Abbey in order to evict Catherine. When Henry returned to Northanger, his father informed him of what had occurred and forbade him to think of Catherine again. When Henry learns how she had been treated, he breaks with his father and tells Catherine he still wants to marry her, despite his father's disapproval. Catherine is delighted, though when Henry seeks her parents' approval, they tell the young couple that final approval will only happen when General Tilney consents. Eventually, General Tilney acquiesces because Eleanor has been engaged to a wealthy and titled man. 
And he discovers that the Morlands, while not extremely rich, are far from destitute. <sighs> and that's how you have it. The first Jane Austen novel that required reading has tackled. Well, Tom, it's that time. Did you, I mean, what we all heard it on the previous episode, that you were unhappy that I put this forward. So... Uh. Did that feeling continue, or did you kind of like it? I think it's <laughs> more kind of indifference. Okay. Isn't that kind true? Like Isn't a, that your Jane Eyre feeling, too? No, I actually really didn't really like Jane Eyre very okay. much. Um, it's not Weathering Heights, which I really do not like. Well, luckily no one's recommended that. Yeah, because I don't think you like Weathering Heights very much either. Yeah, I was just kind of indifferent to it. I didn't see the didn't see the satire in this okay um we'll talk about that um i was expecting a little bit more excitement out of it Uh it was just a bunch of people sitting around something called the pump pump room room. which i'm pretty sure is that a euphemism no give me a break in in 19th century england I don't know. It could be an allegory for something. I mean, read Dracula for crying out loud. Yeah, but yeah. Um, yeah, it just it was just a lot of sitting around and talking and and people where or I could see where this this would work as sort of a a, a teen movie almost in like the eighties or nineties sense because there is a lot of like. I'm going to try to sabotage your relationship with this person by like, you know, taking you on a carriage ride. Like, I think that happens a couple of times. Like she makes plans with, I think Eleanor and then like all of her like toxic friends show up and be like, I know you're like coming with us and like things, things like that. So, but it, but it's like, you know, but, for some reason, when I even though I can get totally engaged with the whole idea of like some of the crap that I see, like some of the more silly teen movies I watched over the years, and stuff like that. I just i I always find it hard to really care about people, you know, repressed nineteenth century British white people. So it's just, it's just a hang up I have, and just kind of like these people are not like, you know, I I, st- I, I struggle to find a reason why I should care about okay. the characters, and that I think that's w- fundamentally what I find wrong with novels like this. It's just like nobody in it is somebody I genuinely am rooting for or care about. Catherine was kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, um, she should she have been the different. most interesting of Yeah, everyone. but I, even then I was just kind of like, I don't know, I was just not, you know, so. But but I didn't, like, hate it, hate it. It was just kind of like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was a meh yeah. novel for you. Meh. M-E-H. Okay. Meh. Well, this is, like I said, this is my favorite Jane Austen novel. I think it's very different from all of her other novels, and she's a witty person to begin with. I think she's an intelligent writer, and I feel like perhaps there's more plot with other novels necessarily than there is with this one, but I also think that that's the purpose of this one. And I just see, uh, I find it (laughs) witty, it's frustrating, but it's intentionally frustrating the way she sets everything up, and really almost going to extreme lengths to like create these characters that are um very superficial and you know poor Catherine this heroine in training and and how is she dealing with all these things and again you know looking at this gothic romance 
genre or just the gothic genre if you want to go that way and there are of course points where austin as reader i suppose because you've got her as narrator and then reader you know defending the novel because she doesn't want to be attacking the novel per se but Mm -hmm. the gothic genre which is more for like titillation and frightening silly girls rather than actually making some insights into human behavior, which is something that I, you know, I feel like Jane Eyre does or Rebecca to a certain extent. Does. Well, it does, not even a certain extent, it does it. And so making this uh, a bit of a farce and, and making fun of that genre and seeing like, oh, you know, she, Catherine is reading all of these. She assumes it's like real life. She has those interactions. Yikes, that's not actually how the real world works. So I, that, I just think it's uh, a lot of fun and um, it's also frustrating but in a fun way. And finally when she gets away from Isabella who's super annoying and, and you have Eleanor who's the, the kinder person and you want to know more about her but uh yeah so anyways i i guess i'll be the 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 bubbly one per use on on this particular episode (laughs) well let's start with this it's the fact that this was her first novel that she wrote though Mm -hmm. last published can you tell can you tell that this is her first novel do you feel like there are differences in how perhaps she formatted things, either characterization or structure or maybe plot with her the later novels, and especially the ones that you, of course, have read, your experience with them. I will tell you, I don't remember a single thing about Sense and Sensibility. Okay. It was like 25 years ago. Emma was still 20-something years ago, but I fe- if I'm comparing it to that one, where you have a very distinct female protagonist, I do see a better written novel in Emma. I see a more complex character. And I th- that novel is farcical in a way because she is this sort of very silly, this silly person in a sense that, but like on purpose. I don't mean that in like the pejorative, like Emma seems to be created as this like kind of silly girl who is trying to match everybody up and, and, and things. And, makes assumptions about society and stuff. Um, it is very immature, but at the same time, um, there's a, she's way more three dimensional to me than Catherine is uh-huh. in this. So I see from what I remember of that novel, cause it's been, I think 1998 was the last year I was when I last read it. So it's been a while from what I remember about that novel, that was a little more complex and a little more further developed. The character seemed a little more round. The situation seemed a little more, a little more uh, shown in it and actually a little, the novel itself is a little more engaging. I could tell that this was um, not as complex in its style and its writing. It, it did feel a little underdeveloped. I, I would agree with the characterization. I think part of it is perhaps because she's still got her training wheels on, but I think also part of it is, and this is a hard thing, right, is to separate what her intention is with this novel versus how she is a writer, how she is mm-hmm. as a writer. Because Catherine, as she said, is a heroine in training. So you do see some development, but not as much as you would potentially, or she's not fully fleshed out as other characters like Elizabeth Bennet or other people. But I think there yeah. are those differences. I think that there's less of a plot with this one. I mean, the fact that you got so annoyed because they kept going to the pump room. Just, um, yeah, every time I turn around, they're in the pump room. It's like, <laughs> Pump already, okay? 
Oh my gosh. Get uh, on with it. Heavens above. So anyways, we're compared to, you know, other interactions or more conflict perhaps, you know, in Pride and Prejudice or something like that. I think maybe the plot is more complex in other novels than mm-hmm. it is here. But uh, again, it's just hard for me to separate, I think, but between the two. Um you know, her intention of this particular novel versus her, her getting started. But I do see differences. I just don't know what can account for what, you know, the satire versus uh, her beginning. But it's also been a while since I've read all of those novels. So it's very hard for me. And I would want to go back and, and look at the language. I felt like this was um, maybe a little bit straight, more straightforward because it's not like she's she's not Charles Dickens for me. But... I feel like she does have some complex sentence structures that, you know, you have to be careful when you're reading her compared to other novelists potentially. So this one, um, perhaps she had not got gotten into that complexity quite yet. Not to say that it was dulled down, but just it, it felt like it flowed. Uh, it was easier for me to, to read than perhaps maybe Pride and Prejudice. But well, Since it was satire... Was the was the efforts at satire getting in the way of like the character development and things? Like, was she too focused on making fun of the the, the things she's making fun of and the way she's making fun of them, and then and and that was done at the uh, expense of character development and plot? I think perhaps because especially if you, plot. Yeah, if you are potentially poking fun at this genre that does have these um you know these girls that get themselves into these odd situations and then there's mm-hmm. you know a ghost or something and then you're modeling a character after those then mm-hmm. i think you you have like this certain archetype almost and you can only go so far with that particular type but i think she was also trying to break catherine out of that type too which yeah. she, because I think at the end, even though she doesn't completely, there are some good quotes that I could pull. But even though she, I feel like I could find something, doesn't I think completely give up her her fantasy? There are moments when she thinks, you know, especially I think when she sort of got slapped by, you know, the figuratively, by uh, Henry after seeing all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, there it is. Yeah, the visions of romance were over. Catherine was completely awakened. Henry's address, short as it had been, had more thoroughly opened her eyes to extravagance of her late fancies than all their several disappointments had done. So, yeah, just, I think um, that that breaks her out of that, and so then she almost starts becoming a character that has left that archetype of the hero, the quote-unquote heroine in a gothic novel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what you're saying is correct. Which is perhaps the feeling of satire. Would you say that's true of satires in general? I think it can be, depending on how far you're going with it and uh, and what your what the point of your satire is as well. Um, and if you're getting that point across, uh, you know, um, I'm trying to think of modern day stuff that's parody. No, okay, parody parody is a form of satire, but parody is a lower point. Can be a lower form of satire. You know, like Airplane or The Naked Gun, like those movies are yeah. parodies and they're they're clearly not meant to be, you know, witty, intelligent films. You know, you laugh at them because they're just a bunch of sight gags and, and in movie jokes, right? Sure. But then you have um, 
something that has that is a parody or a satire of a genre that's a little more intelligent, which is like Scream. You know, which which they talk about metafiction and it, and it takes apart the whole slasher genre, but it's essentially a satire of slasher mm-hmm. movies, and you know it it works because the character like Nev Campbell's character, who is essentially the final girl, you know the 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 kind of kind of cute but not too hot because that Rose McGowan's the the bombshell in the movie. Mm-hmm. The one who, if it were like, if if it were an R-rated movie, Rose McGowan would have been the one with the nude scene. Scream was R-rated. Yeah, but she's not naked in that. What movie are you talking? She about? it was R-rated. No, it was it was R-rated, but I don't remember her being naked. Like, oh, but in, like, this, if, what this you were, said, like if this were like if it were R-rated, no, no, if it were like I'm thinking like 80s R-rated, oh, like Friday okay. the Thirteenth R. If it was like you know you know um, 80s slasher movie, Rose McGowan would have had at least one nude scene before she was killed. <laughs> Nev Campbell is the one who is she's like the Marianne, you know, um, and 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 Rose McGowan's the ginger. So, so and cat, you know, so but so there's there's a point being made, but but uh, Nev Campbell's character is like Sydney is way more developed as a character, like you know, a character that like, you care for and everything. And I think, you know, Craven's kind of is kind of making a point about you know. About you know our absorption of, of entertainment and and these these movies and and how we kind of how we view them and how we can kind of turn them on their head and everything. Mm-hmm. I think that you know I'm not as familiar. See, the problem with satire essentially is that you have to understand what's being satirized. So if you don't get it, then the you're not going to get the jokes. And I really didn't get it most of the time because aside from i'd say jane Eyre or weathering heights keep calling it weathering heights weathering heights weathering whatever heathcliff's a jerk (laughs) to both catherine's yeah just oh anyway um there's moors and it's foggy let's just say that um but the like it's like i just think that what was i saying if you don't get i know when i think of those are the only gothic novels that i'm familiar with and i don't even think those those qualify like to the fullest extent because when i think gothic i think of like edgar Allan poe but i don't know if jane austen would have read poe you know which is a totally different, like you know, type of, sure. or, or I think of like Southern Gothic stuff that's a little more um, recent than Jane Austen. So I don't have the familiarity with Gothic um, novels that you do. So I don't. Get, I, I get some of the jokes, and I get. I can when I hear this is a satire, I can kind of see what's being satirized and everything. In the same way that Gulliver's Travels is a satire, but I don't know all of the ins and outs of what Swift was satirizing. Mm-hmm. So it's just to me, it's just a silly story about Lilliputians and the Brobdingnagians and like all these different things. So I don't know what her point is. Okay. And, you know, what, what exactly she's making fun of, the point she's trying to make with it, or what she's pointing out by saying, this is silly. Yeah. So maybe it's just that's what it is. It's just lost on me because I don't have a frame of reference. Yeah, I think, I mean, she's just looking because there there's this, it's possible for gothic novels to also show, I think, insight into actual human nature. But the mm. ones that she brings up, like Mysteries of Udolpho, are just these sort of frightening effects and there's nothing really being revealed or no realism there. Or insights into you know how people are interacting with each other, or certain things like that. And so I think that's 
what she's actually sort of looking at. So she's trying to she's, she's creating a superficial novel to critique those superficial novels, whereas she would prefer ones like Jane Eyre, you know, where there is actual, there's something actually going on, and that speaks to actual uh, human interactions and and human nature with the the woman in the attic and um, mm-hmm. you know in Rochester and all that stuff. So. That's, I mean, that would be her main intent. But I guess you answer your question because before you kind of made it sound like you didn't think it was satirical, but it's more that you do think it might be satirical, but you weren't on the in and the jokes. Yeah, it's. Okay. I need to know. Sure. It it went over my head because I don't have any context. Okay, like Animal or, Farm. I guess. Isn't that a satire? I mean, I- so oh, like, it is satire. No, it's an I mean, allegory. I'm sorry. I wasn't uh, saying like, you don't know End of a Farm. No, I know. I mean I, like if you don't know the historical context, yeah, 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 then yeah, yeah, it yeah. wouldn't make sense. Or, or in the same way that if you don't understand, um, like if you read The Crucible, The Crucible is not is not a satire. It is a commentary. Sure. But, you know, if you have no knowledge of McCarthyism and, con- and, the, and the Red Scare of the 50s, you're just going to think this is a pretty horrific looking play about the uh, Salem Witch Trials. Yeah. You know, so so knowing, I think knowing the context or being among the audience of the time, or just being understanding of of the works of the time, is something that would really, really help you understand the satire in this book. Yeah. Do you feel like Catherine breaks out of this, maybe the archetype that that we may have put her in this mold, and actually turns into uh, a deserving young woman in the end? Uh, she certainly seems less naive at the end or less kind of indulgent of like silly fantasies and stuff. I don't know if, I don't know, like worthy in what regard or, you know, I'm trying to think of, you know, I mean, she, I don't find her very independent in a sense. Um, But then again, like I said, she's kind of an underdeveloped character to me. Right. Um, So then I didn't, aside from, it seems like she's it seems like she's strung along by the men in her life in one way or another and it's kind of like yeah she does want to marry henry and she's great but it's just kind of again but then again this is my 21st century view on it it's like you know why does she need a guy and why do, and why does it only get consented when you know, oh, your family has some money, then that's sure. okay. You know, that's it's kind of it's kind of off to me to celebrate a heroine who basically um, get what she gets what she wants or has the happy ending because every all the men around her decide it's okay. Yeah. You know, um, but she said certainly is a little less um, less naive or less you know susceptible to uh, maybe the influence of others, at least with the the mean girling that Isabella and her friends do and that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, I would agree. I really like Catherine, especially, I mean, she's naive, but she's so sweet and she tries to, I, I think she really does see the best in a lot of people. And I think it was somebody asked her to dance or asked somebody to dance. And I can't remember how the exact situation was, but she, she said no. And then turned to, I think Henry or something and said, that um, he must have saw me sitting here alone and thought that it would be good to dance, unless it was Isabella. But I just remember, like, her, you know, rather <laughs> than... I'm sorry? 17, and you know what I mean. It's that Beatles song. I have no idea. So I saw her standing there. Oh, okay. That sounds familiar <laughs> that later there. And, yeah, so I think she's just sweet and kind, and unfortunately <laughs> that gets in the way of her understanding, like, 
what people's true motives are and she gets herself into some trouble and almost rolled over because of you know other people like that whole thing let's go to the the castle and them convincing her that they had seen the Tilneys walk you know on the carriage mm, yeah that's that. and, um and then Isabella's still trying to keep you know feeling like there was something there but thinking no no Isabella wouldn't be a gold digger basically but find that so through yeah. experience I think she is able to grow up I think Henry snaps her out of this gothic romanticist i romanticist idea and and you know looking for mysteries and everything which really partially is his fault because he did all those weird stories on the way over and mm -hmm. uh yeah i think she she grows up and matures but you're right that she still is somewhat leaning on other people and hoping that the marriage is okay i guess we yeah only guess. yeah that scene where where they like convince you know, they basically try to try to mess with her so that she'll kind of drop the her friends so they'll stay with her. It's that's right out of like that really is right out of like a nine oh two one oh episode or something. Like, you know, or, or like a Degrassi something. You oh, know, nice. like these these this this playbook of of like really awful people who, who in, 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 it'd be a little more explicit or a little not explicit in terms of like, you know, adult content, but explicit in terms of like, you know, of how it's presented in something today where not only are they doing that to her, but they're basically doing, cause they're keeping her around for them to her to be their like punching bag, basically, mm -hmm. you know, like they, they keep her around to make themselves feel better about themselves. Okay. You know, or at least that's kind of the impression I was getting after a while because, like, they do use her. Sure. Is it, it Isabella and then, like, is it James and John? Yeah. Are the two are the two men? James is her brother, yeah. Yeah, and and they're kind of like they're 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 very they're they're very passive aggressive about it in some ways, and then Isabella is I I, I I'm the only character who I had any sort of like genuinely genuine feelings for in this novel was Isabella and I really did not like her. Okay. It was cuz it was just because Which she came off I suppose. Yeah, I guess she was the she seemed very she seemed like she was one of the antagonists of the novel and she in some ways comes off as way more immature than Catherine. Yeah. I I don't know if my assessment is correct but in that sort of really bratty immature way like you know I'm not going to speak to you because of this or that, or it's just, it's, it's so, it's very mean girly type of, of stuff that I think audiences can relate to if they can understand what's going on. Do you think that James is also naive as Catherine? I don't know. You might be strung along with everybody else. I'm not entirely sure. What do you think? I wondered if it ran in the family. Well, I, I mean, I guess part of it is, you know, Isabella being the one to to flirt and everything but he does he's a party to the i just saw the coach go around the corner so it's not yeah. like he's helping much but then you just wonder about his turnaround too because he was blindsided to a certain extent or he was taken um I'm trying to think of a, a good phrase here he was uh hoodwinked he was hoodwinked mm. as well so what's her um relationship we don't see much of an establishment with of a relationship between james and Catherine prior to her going to bath with the allens do we no i think she's the eldest of all the daughters if i recall okay. correctly so it's not like 
these two are like really close. We're like thick as thieves yeah. as kids. Yeah. So the family it's, of ten. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Gotcha. Three sons before Catherine was born. Yeah. So yeah. she is the eldest daughter. So it's very possible he could be in on it as well because it's not like he's very close to his sister and he's guided by his self interest. Yeah. This isn't like Elizabeth and her elder sister. What was her no. elder sister's name? Um. Jane. Yes. Yeah. Not like that. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about Eleanor a little bit because she's here, kind of hidden within this novel. She's got a dead mother, an Mm. overbearing father, and she ends up up marrying a Viscount. What do you think the... What is a Viscount? Um, one of those people with a title. I'd have to Google search what they're... Oh, it's just like, it's just, it's basically an aristocratic title? Correct. Okay, all right. What do you think the book would have been like had Austin chosen Eleanor as the heroine? And do you think it would have been like a true gothic novel? Dead mother and overbearing father. Uh, it's all, it's almost Cinderella-like. And it's, <laughs> <laughs> except that it's the stepmother was overbearing, not the father. Maybe it would have been a little more like there would have been more gothic elements in there because she has those sorts of like that sort of origin messed up origin background story to her you know it it gives you something to a point of reference for this girl um and and you can get into the like you know oh, why does she act this way is this because of her mother and and you know, her father her relationship with her parents and we could see how that affects that and stuff um I don't know. Maybe it would have been really, even really, really cheesy to do it that way. And she chose Catherine because Catherine was, Catherine wanted to live that as opposed to Eleanor, who kind of was in a way. Like, not that Catherine wanted her parents dead, but Catherine, like, had this fantasy of being in a gothic novel. And Eleanor is, like, the closest person to, in this whole novel who actually is living the life of somebody in a gothic novel. Yeah. Am I Am I wrong in that assessment? I think. That's that's kind of what I'm getting. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, she there's this tragic moment in her past. She's living potentially mm-hmm. in a creepy abbey. Yeah, mansion. Yeah, yeah or I was going to say mansion. I'm like, well, it is technically an abbey. But overbearing father is, I think, very different from like an abusive father or something. So she, mm-hmm. there's a tragic moment, but it's not like she's still suffering at the hands of something. And Yeah. Um, so I think that's where it ends. Uh, it, she almost has like the backdrop of and like the making of a gothic heroine. But she almost reminds me of the sister of Darcy where she's kind of in the shadows. And like I think she was the one who was almost taken advantage of by um, Wickham. It, but, you know, she's she's just a side character and it's more like building up the, the other main characters. So I think there are she could potentially be a lead but i don't think which sounds bad but i don't think it's like tragic enough Mm -hmm. or you know so i think austin had she done that and made it a true gothic novel she would have had to have some mystery in the abbey or her father would have had to have been rather unkind rather than Mm -hmm. overbearing which isn't necessarily i mean it could be negative and crimp in your style but it's not the worst thing in the world and then it would probably be parody more than satire, or it yeah. would veer into parody, whereas she's not necessarily going for parody in here, from what I can gather. Mm-hmm. Henry, of course, is actually a controversial hero. 
Sylvia Warner Townsend, who is an English novelist and poet, or who was, I should say, in the early, early 20th century, suggested that she thinks he's one of Austen's most delightful, which I wonder <laughs> if you would disagree, probably. Some find him witty and appealingly interested in feminine matters. Others find him condescending and even misogynistic. What position do you take in this argument? Uh, <laughs> oh, Tom. I don't know if he's misogynistic. Condescending, maybe? But that's like every man in this book. Yeah. Mis- see, we, the, the word misogynistic or misogyny gets used a lot, especially on the Twitters. <laughs> and it's like, it's a really strongly, it's a word with a strong connotation right. in my mind. Like it's hatred of women, as opposed to say sexism, it's, which is all, and, and condescension, which is like all degrees of this on the same, you know, plane or axis or whatever we're calling it. Line. I don't see him as outright hating women. Um, I don't know if he's a hero per se. I didn't find him delightful, but um, but I do. You know, but then again, like I said, everybody's kind of condescending to the women in this book, so it's kind of an easy target, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I don't really, I don't know. Like I said, I, the, the problem is that I was so that I was so indifferent to a lot of what was going on here that I didn't attach myself to a character, and that I didn't really, I did feel, I did feel that he was a better man than James or John. I will give sure. you that. Yeah. And I think those two are maybe not misogynist, but definitely sexist and chauvinistic. Yeah, I think he's probably in between, I would say. I like him because I see him through Catherine's lens. So because she likes him, I like him. And I think there are moments that he appeals to me, like when he defends the novel. You know, I think she says something that is almost, what's that called, self-deprecating. Like, oh, you probably think these are foolish. And he's like, no, I actually think that novels are delightful. You know, so he was on her side. Yeah. But then there, you know, he leads her to believe these ghost stories or, well, you know, he, he basically makes Northanger Abbey out to be something it's not jokingly, but with actual things planted inside. And then he gets upset at her that she jumped to this insane conclusion, which was, of course, her fault, but I would also blame him. Yeah. And there are other moments that he... I would agree with the condescending because there are some moments that it's kind of like he's giving her a compliment, but the way he's doing it is, like, very bizarre. I can't even... I wish I could... Like a backhanded compliment? It is. Yeah, like, oh, you would think that, you know, because you're, like, innocent, you would think the better of the people, and you're like, what sort of tone is that, Henry? Yeah. And then at the very end, because, you know, as a romanticist, as a shipper, as you know, Tom, I, Uh, you know, I enjoy people getting together. But even at the end, it's kind of, like, anticlimactic because he says his feelings were originally just gratitude. You're like, oh, gosh, what is that? So he only talked with her and had warm feelings of gratitude, whereas she was latched on right at the very beginning, and then it grew from there, which is interesting. But I guess, you know, you've got um, Darcy, who that was, like, resentment and hatred i suppose and annoyance uh-huh. so i guess gratitude is better but yeah i would say he's in between i don't think he hates women i think that uh if he hated women why would he even be hanging out at the pump room you know what i'm saying <laughs> i know right the uh well i also get the feeling like you know when he's telling her all those ghost stories 
I don't know. The intent behind it seems less malicious than, say, the intent behind what John and James are doing. Sure. That and Isabella, that seems to be mean to me. Whereas this is light teasing that is not meant to be... That can be taken the wrong way, mm. but the intent is not malicious, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So that's why I don't think... I don't know if... That's why I said... That's why I was saying, yeah, they're condescending, but not like downright misogynistic toward her well one character that Catherine actually thinks the worst of is general tilney why do you think she thinks so poorly of him and do you think she really is mistaken uh in regards to i mean obviously he well i shouldn't say obviously but he probably did not kill his wife but do you think even though henry says you're mistaken about all of this stuff. Do you think she really is? And do you think maybe her powers of imagination are more reliable than her powers of observation? You know, I hate to say it because it's almost like I fell for a trick, but I was kind of expecting some sort of Rebecca-esque moment yeah. somewhere along the line in North Northanger Abbey. Uh-huh. Like when she went there and she's looking, hearing all these stories and she's kind of snooping around, I'm like, all right, this is starting to get good, you know? Granted, uh, that line of thought is a little too Scooby-Doo for people who read Jane Austen, probably. But at the same time, I was like, I was expecting something like that or something a little more sinister. I see him as, yeah, overbearing and a real jerk of a person. I don't think she's mistaken regarding that aspect of her of his character. Maybe she is letting her imagination get away with her. She thinks that that he might have killed his wife because in the world of this book it doesn't seem like that would have actually happened Mm. i don't know it doesn't it doesn't seem to fit it would be a crazy twist that i don't know if it would work in the way that austin is it would have had to been foreshadowed or hinted at or something like or 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 the way we find out would have to really match the tone of the rest of the book because i don't think you could take a hard left like that And, and have it really work, do you think? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> oh, gosh. I think he's the, the natural one to have this imagination go towards because everyone else is in her peer group, and mm-hmm. she has thought well of them, and so she comes to this North, Northanger Abbey, and obviously the, the gatekeeper of that needs to be, he's got to have some mysteriousness about him. And then when she, fi- and everything was fine until, because it's very quick in the novel. I actually like reread it because I thought, yikes, that's a quick transition there, Catherine. But it's just that walk in the garden and he doesn't want to go a particular route because it was a route that Eleanor had walked with her mother. And so, Right away, the next thing is, well, he must, you know, he must be unfeeling, all of this stuff. And so it's, her imagination leads her there because I think it was already open and she assumed, but I think he was the most likely out of all of them to, to have that ire or suspicion. Uh, the, uh, the next best person would have been Frederick, a.k.a. Captain Tilney, but because mm-hmm. she didn't have too many dealings with him and he was still in Bath while she was... At Northanger, I think she couldn't really, uh, yeah, do that. Is it, uh, I don't know. So this is, yeah, this is the suspicion is, did he actually care for his wife? And he leaves the room as is, so potentially he doesn't like anyone to go in there. So that kind of makes me, makes it seem like, yes, 
he does care for her. He doesn't want anyone to touch it. My only suspicion is that um, he clearly says some untruthful things. So there's that moment where he's talking about kind of in a what book did we read? Vanity Fairway with that old mm-hmm. woman talking to uh, Becky where he says like money, basically money doesn't matter. I yeah. think in terms of social status um, or marriage, as long as like the person is honorable. And when Catherine repeats this, Henry and Eleanor look at each other as if they know the truth that that's, that's not true. So you kind of wonder like maybe, well, it might not be as extreme as Catherine is thinking she might have actually picked on you know picked up on maybe a piece of his his actual nature and we see that part of that is true I mean with how ex Xenia he is practically mm-hmm. I mean I guess not technically but he does he kicks her out so rudely uh he does he's not even there to do it so I think she does hit on something but it's just not as extreme as her imagination would lead her to believe yeah and yeah because with becky it was becky was the one who was the sort of the not the villain in vanity fair but like (laughs) she kept trying to buy her way into society and like and 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 there was that idea of like there's that it's almost a cliche saying by now like money can't buy you class and and there's a sense of like um kind of rich trash out there that yeah. you know or or and i think god i'm pretty sure it was like chris rock or some comedian had a whole bit about the difference between rich and wealthy oh, interesting. you know and th- i think it's just very and i don't think he came up with it but it's that idea of having money and having wealth are two different things mm-hmm. well let's talk so, yeah. about wealth actually all right. So, obviously, a couple characters, or a number of characters, I think, as you said, are overly fixated on wealth status, mm-hmm. social standing, to the point where it overshadows everything and anything for them. Does Catherine have the same fixations, and what is Austin trying to say here? I was trying to think about this, because this is actually one of my questions. I want to say Catherine starts to fall down that hole, like that trap, fall for that idea, because she's around these people all the time, but I think... I never got the impression that she was obsessed in the way that, like, Isabella is. Because Isabella comes off to me as, like... I don't want to say she's a gold digger, but... Um, <laughs> I don't want to say... Do, do, do. Isn't there a song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was. But did you get the sense that she is kind of, like... Like, you know, she'll she'll go after the money more than the guy? Yeah, I if, think Especially if the guy has it, money? Yeah. And yeah, whichever and th- is the best one available. So when Frederick dropped her, she's trying to go back to James. Yeah, and, and Eleanor... To me, Eleanor to me comes off as way more quiet and sincere and mm-hmm. sweet. Catherine's kind of in the middle of that, and, and I think that the problem is that Catherine, like at least at some points in the novel, is so influenced by other people. Maybe she's desperate for friendship because, like, she does write about how, like, you know, she becomes like instant friends with like these two women, yeah. and they couldn't be more different from one another. And she's pulled in two directions, so it's very possible that Catherine's susceptible to it. But my impression was that by the end, she's not, even though everybody around her seems to be just so obsessed with keeping a status quo or making sure that, like, you know, you're marrying into a good family or, you know, the idea that you could fall in love with this person and get married because you're in love with this person seems foreign to a number of people in the novel. Um, And, like, that's where I made kind of the comment earlier. It's like, you know, they decide she can marry uh, Henry because, oh, all of a sudden her parents actually have some money. You know, so she's not like she breaks the mold or rebels against society here. She's still kind of following along with that, but it's almost like she's just basically seeking their approval. She's not after the money. So, but then again, I don't, 
I might be off on my analysis of that. Well, I guess we'll kind of have our own opinions on. I, I, I yeah, don't go, think, go for it. Go yeah, for no, it. I don't think. I think there's definitely the people around her. I mean, Isabella especially, I think, has a great regard for money. And then John Thorpe inflates other people in order to inflate himself by association. But with Catherine, I just don't see that with Catherine at all, mainly because of how she looks at Isabella and feels like Isabella is disappointed at the time that it'll take the year rather than the, the money. Like, that's not even a concern for her. I feel like I don't even see her talking about, w- with the exception of dresses, potentially, but that was uh-huh. something that I didn't quite understand fashion-wise because, shoot, Mrs. Allen would get her to, or she would suggest a particular pattern or fabric, but Catherine would do her own thing. And so I don't know if there's something that we're not getting because we're not of that culture and time that perhaps, I don't know if she was going for something richer or perhaps something not as rich, but it was clearly not in line with Mrs. Allen. Um And then, yeah, just I feel like she never said anything about Henry or, like, his wealth. I mean, of course she talked about Northanger Abbey, but I think it was more f- in association with the novels that she was reading and looking at that. So for me, I feel like there's – she didn't have that desire. Um, but like you said, companionship and friendship, she – it didn't seem like she had much of that at home. And then she really latched on because that was such a big thing for them in the pump room. It's like once they finally found people they could hang out with, this was a huge thing. And it was even yeah. marked upon later on. Like wasn't that great when we finally found the Thorpe? So I think companionship is a big thing for her. And for Jane Austen, what is she saying? <laughs> I mean I think Jane – criticizes wealth a lot uh austin i think austin criticizes things uh, wealth and stuff a lot in her novels um though i feel like practically every character has isn't every novel have some sort of rich character but i think it's always for austin it always seems like it's not the wealth that uh, makes the person, obviously. It's their, their honor. I'm, I'm thinking of Willoughby in Sense and Sensibility. And uh-huh. I can't remember if he had wealth or if he was just one of those sort of shysters. But uh-huh. um, that, oh gosh, what was her name? Eleanor is the older daughter. Um, I can't remember the, uh, something. <laughs> I think it ends with an Ean. But her, I'll probably remi- remember. She ends up marrying this captain and you know who's older than her but honorable and he probably has some money but i think it's more about the the person that it is rather than the the money but in this Mm -hmm. case i suppose henry kind of was a decent person and had the money so it turned out okay for which but then the people who don't end up well are the ones that were seeking after money so perhaps there's a moral lesson in that yeah perhaps that's kind of what i was starting to get out of it Okay, well, the last question I'm doing, because I feel like we, do you agree that we talked about Yeah, I think we covered, yes, I think we did. The last question I thought we could bring it back to the real world, and it's about escapist fiction, which Tom and I, we we deal with a lot, am I right? Mm -hmm. I think we both love escapist fiction as well. We do. Uh, Yeah, so anyways, we're told immediately that Catherine does not object to books so long as, quote, Nothing like useful knowledge could be gained from them, quote. 
and they are quote all story and no reflection okay so again this is you know austin going through and and um, through Catherine and making fun of, of those novels there. So escapist fiction obviously it continues in our day to have potentially a bad reputation. Do you think that this reputation is deserved? No, because I think it comes from those who want to be pretentious or who are pretentious and they want to gatekeep in many ways. The, the first place I encountered that sort of snobbery toward escapist fiction was probably college and among and i think i first encountered it not in the in the context of novels but in the context of movies Mm. because being around people who were like really into stuff that like was david lynch films and things like that that they took way more seriously than somebody like me who was watching John Hughes movies, you know, and, and things like that. And so, and I'm watching it not for the great insight into human nature, just because I like a good, you know, cause it was my, it was my thing or, or, or just movies like, um, or even like with Tarantino movies and things. Cause I was, I was in college in the mid to late nineties. Um, so I remember encountering a lot of that and that sort of snobbery that comes around for like, oh, you like that. In fact, I've encountered – I remember encountering it here and there, and I know people in, in our circle have encountered it among people who will insist on using the phrase graphic novels <gasps> and and looking down on the phrase comic books, especially superhero comic books. You know what I mean? Like, oh, you read – superhero comic books so i've encountered that and i'm like you're just basically a pretentious blowhard who is kind of like doing what you can to just kind of pump your own ego there and and there even in even in professional circles there's that whole idea of literary fiction where um what you write has to be serious and, and like it's so and some of it is so overwrought and some of it is so like just up its own rear end and and you're like and God, what I sometimes I would I just kill for stuff like, like a good just dumb action book or a or a Stephen King, you know, or or a, or just a, a solid like you know, a spy novel or something, you know. Like I was just reading a, um, a John Le Carre novel, The Spy Who Came In for the Cold, which is just going on there cold war spy stuff but at the end of the day it's like i'm there because it's entertaining and i love cold war cold war related stuff because it's 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 a political and historical period of time that i I really really enjoy reading about so and and i'm not there to see like i don't need like you your attempts at great literary works and i think there are some authors who have become great literary writers from the past who were writing for an audience and didn't in some cases didn't feel that they had to be overly intelligent, you know. Mm. Like I didn't, I never got the Steinbeck never came off to me as pretentious. I don't know, you know, like and maybe I'm wrong on that. Like I found him very relatable, and there are other writers who are lauded in literary circles that I find very relatable, or I find their stories easily accessible, and and um, some great like Flannery O'Connor has some great insight into human nature. But I don't find her stories pretentious, mm. you know. So, so I I bristle when somebody kind of comes at like you know escapist. I think we need now. Now, some of it is not worthy of study 
in say like my AP lit class. And the reason for that is that you, because you can't go to the novels, not deep enough for that sort of substantive, substantive literary analysis. I mean, back in uh, this post no longer exists because it was for a website that was defunct, but back in that's defunct, but back in like 2000, the early part of my career, I was writing the occasional blog post about reading, uh, writing English, sorry, teaching English for some edgy website that doesn't exist anymore. And it, I, I was talking about how like, you know, no, you can't teach Twilight in a high school English class because it's just, it's not deep enough. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, like that was like one of my first mistakes on the internet in that regard, because all the Twihards came out and go like, you know, who are you to decide what's great literature? We get to decide what the great books are. And it's like, no, there's a certain merit to like why certain books are considered great, and and Twilight in a big way has faded, <laughs> and, and to the point where in some cases it's actually a punchline, because it was never that you know good. Whereas we could look at something like Suzanne Collins or The Hunger Games, and and say you know there's some merit here at, uh, on a on a middle to to low high school level of like you know look at look at where there's a hero's journey and look at where there's political commentary and this and those sorts of things you know and and I mean I'm, I'm sure if you want to like I would never I would never assign the Hunger Games in an AP Lit class but at the same time but that was but I could assign it to like you know my my seventh grade or eighth graders and stuff and be like hey let's read this let's discuss what this is about and that was a popular book. And in some ways, it's, it is escapist in some ways, mm-hmm. you know? It is a fantasy piece. The Lord of the Rings is fantasy. And I think you certainly could study that. So, yeah. I, I love I love good escapist fiction. I think some of it is worth studying. I think some of it is absolute crap, but you read it because it's absolute crap. And I got to tell, you know, tell you, for years in the publishing industry, what kept that publishing industry, some of those publishing houses afloat, was not your pretentious... MFA MFA churned Iowa writer mafia churned out book. It was all of the Harlequin romance novels that were being published. You know the historical romance genre, horror like these things that you pick up and you got like, you know, or like all those Star Trek expanded universe novels that I read and stuff. These things were cranked out like, and they were money makers because, you know, they they just crank them out and they would they would crank them out in paperback and they would sell and. And they were they were big money makers, so you could write your your take on Faulkner for the umpteenth time because you went to Iowa, you know. So yeah, so that that's that's me on my soapbox. Come at me. Yeah, I don't I don't think I have too much to add. I think you know. <laughs> I'm a terrible English teacher, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> escape. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I, I'm also trying to figure out like why it has this this bad reputation and and perhaps it's because of some of the things that have come out that have no merit or or looking into human nature potentially so let me put you said twilight let me put out the the parody of twilight which is of course 50 shades of gray right so i'm Wasn't thinking that to my fanfic it was, yeah. Yeah. So maybe I used parody incorrectly. But it was based off of... Yeah, it was based off of Twilight. Twilight. yeah. Just a little more. So, you know, you think about that and you're like, well, why are these people reading this? And, you know, that's titillation for sure. Because it's porn. <laughs> it, yeah, it is about... Um, And, you know, can you get anything out of it? I don't know. Because hopefully, you know, proper... Well, this is my opinion, of course. <laughs> proper relationship should not be like that. But... 
So I can I can see that because if you look at that and like, oh, if that's escapist literature, we should have nothing to do with it. But at the same time, I think because of the world that it is now, which mm-hmm. is it's a pretty tough place to live in. Mm-hmm. And this is coming from someone that has, you know, quote unquote white privilege uh, mm-hmm. and lives in the United States. Same here. But we <laughs> we don't like to be looking at the news all the time or, you know, nonfiction kind of stuff that's scary. We do like to, to break off. And that's not to lose ourselves in it because I think maybe that's where the danger is and people don't like it where you're just looking at that. You're not looking, uh, you know, realistic things, realism or current events, things like that. But if you take, take a moment for sanity – sake and, and take an adventure i think that that's okay and that's you know for yeah. for me that's what comics are to a certain extent but at the same time realism pokes through comics and i think that's fine i think that's laudable as well and there are great um works of fiction that i think might be considered escapist but i get a lot out of and i think it's it's almost what you know, it is what you make of it. If you're yeah. only losing yourself in that type of literature and you're not stepping out of that bubble, perhaps there's something wrong. I think it's the golden mean, right? There's yeah. always extremes. You're only yeah. doing such and such in the world and it's all nonfiction and you're steeped in realism and you're probably uh-huh. like mentally um, incapacitated. Or you are only doing escapist stuff. You're staying out of all of that and mm-hmm. you, you maybe are starting, like Catherine, to blend fiction with real life or imagination with real life. you got to find that middle ground, I think. <sighs> Yeah, the, the the funny thing is because I was thinking it, the people who go so far in all of those extremes to the point where it kind of overruns the way they are, you know, or the way they gather entertainment or the way they interact in certain social circles or fandoms and things, those people can be insufferable. So even something really escapist like a Harry Potter, uh, Harry Potter, for instance, you know, Harry Potter has really diehard fans out sure. there. Um, my son's a big Harry Potter fan, but he's also 12 and he read those when he was younger and he likes Percy Jackson and stuff. But there are like people like my age who are like hardcore Harry Potter fans and they, to the point where they're so insufferable, they actually turn me off to reading the books sometimes. Cause I'm just like, yeah, you know, like those sure. type of people. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's like those people who are like literary, the literary, the literati and they're just as insufferable as well. It's like, you know, just like you you don't want to be around them. You know, they're like, they're just, because they're just so full of it. I don't know if, I, I don't know if Mike Bailey came up with the phrase, you can't argue taste, but it is a bit of a mantra for him. And I really do like it because we all have our different tastes. And I'm not saying, well, it's wrong to make fun of somebody else's taste in something. You know, I will, we will rib each other for the things that we like, uh, you and me. Mm-hmm. But it's because we're friends. Of course. But like you know, somebody you don't know, it, it's it's kind of it's kind of off-putting for you to be like you know, kind of look down on them for liking something, or at least express it. I think it's human nature to sometimes you look down on people for like what they like or what they do. It's your humanity and your sense of you know, I don't know, manners and things, or being a nice person that just kind of pushes those thoughts aside. And does not vocalize them because then, therefore, you're not being, you know, a jerk. So, mm-hmm. 
but yeah, so just you do need that golden mean. You need that. Um, I think that's why I try to dip my toes in different genres like all the time. Sure. I, I also get bored reading the same type of thing over and over. Yeah. That's true. So maybe it's, a, maybe it's the ADHD. I don't know. <gasps> so. Okay. <laughs> uh, read well, escapist fiction. There you go. Yeah. I mean, just not all the time, I think. And yeah. check it out of your public library. There you go. Yeah. Well, we're at an end here. And as Tom mm-hmm. discovered last episode, as he was editing, I think, <laughs> is that we've been stumbling along. What question should we ask at the end? You know, is it teachable? Uh, do mm-hmm. we recommend it? Recommend it, yeah. What was the first one we came up with? Oh, is I think it, it was, would you teach this? Or okay. And, uh, well, Tom discovered that really it's right there smacking us in the face. That's why that my physics teacher used to say, kiss, keep it simple, stupid. Um, so is this, is Northanger Abbey required reading? And, and I'd like to note that neither of us realized that this was staring us right into the face until I think I did text you. And I was like, I can't believe I yeah, yeah. missed yep. this. Is it required reading? I'm going to say no because from my experience, this wouldn't even be the first Jane Austen novel I would recommend. I probably would recommend Emma. Granted, I have not read Pride and Prejudice, which I know is like the big one or like the one that most Emma and Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility got like big movies made out of them. And I think that's how I knew them. Um, I know Pride and Prejudice is the one that a lot of people mention as their like favorite. But so I don't think that would I think that's why it wouldn't be required reading. I think it would be like your if you're new to this author, it would be your second or third book. I forgot so to mention I was, that there is a BBC adaptation of this with um, Jin Erso as the lead, Catherine. Ah, okay. I'm not surprised. Yeah. So, in fact, I didn't know who Jane Austen was until the um, <laughs> until the 1992-93 movie. Emma Thompson was. I think Emma Thompson won like a screenplay Oscar, or so she won an Oscar for it. I think of she Sense did. and Sensibility, yeah. and then and then Gwyneth Paltrow did Emma. Yep. And then there was a Pride and Prejudice um, later on. Yeah, so yeah, Kier, yeah. And then the Kira Knightley version. Kira Knightley, yeah. So so yeah. So I didn't know who Jane Austen was until I was in high school and they were making movies. For so. shame. Yeah. So no, I would say no only because I only really because um, it, I think there are other Jane Austen novels that uh, that you should read first. Yeah. Even though this is my favorite one, I would agree with you. And I think also you touched on something that unless you have a desire for and have read gothic romance novels that this might be like the jokes might be lost on you so Mm. you know unless you're a fan of the mysteries of udolpho i suppose and jane Eyre and um rebecca i think that perhaps this will be like eh, it's okay so yeah we do have a little bit of feedback okay robert it was really a link robert ward shared with us an article about how if you go through Amazon's bookstore, there are unauthorized unauthorized versions of books um, that were published through their self-publishing app. Huh? Where people have taken versions of what? Of already published books. So it was uh, it it was an article in the New York Times um, back in the middle of August. Paging Big Brother in Amazon's bookstore Orwell gets a rewrite as fake and illegitimate texts. Ill, sorry, as fake and illegitimate texts proliferate online, books are becoming a form of misinformation. The author of 1984 would not be surprised. And uh, the writer, who is David uh, Streitfeld or Sh- Streitfeld, is uh, writing about how what happens is that. Um, 
people are essentially counterfeiting these books. They are basically copying and pasting the books and then self-publishing them as the novel, but they're editing them in some way. So he says, um, you know, the, the author, the author's estates don't get anything. He says, what unites all these books is that none of them paid the author anything, which means they could compete with legal Orwell titles at a, as a lower cost alternative. After all, if you need a copy of Animal Farm or 1984 for school, you're not going to think too much about who published it because all of 1980 editions of 84 are the same, right? Well, not always and not on Amazon. One reader discovered to his surprise that his new copy of 1984 had passages that were worded slightly different. Another offered photographic proof that her edition was near gibberish. A third said that the word faces was replaced in his copy with feces, which what? means it was probably recopied by a high school sophomore. Getting oral books that skip a chunk of pages seemed to be a routine experience. So he said he started browsing Orwell on Amazon. The fake books appeared to help Amazon by, for example, encouraging publishers to advertise their genuine books on the site. Amazon said it uh, prohibits it prohibits these things, but they're kind of like hedging with it. But basically, um, they were uh, but they were were kind of like wiping counterfeit copies. But they're digital. Yeah, they're digital. And so because people it's are a- just like. I could write Pride and Prejudice, but decide to write my own thing. Yeah, interesting. Or you could change words around, why? or, or why? edit. Well, in um, what's the purpose? Why can't they write their own novel? I don't. Well, I, I think the 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 cynical and conspiratorial type of person in, in me says that this is kind of the. The, the, with Orwell, it's like the Newspeak type of thing where they're uh, where they're rewriting they're rewriting the book to suit a certain agenda, so that you know, like you'll actually believe that it's not you know that what you th- they're manipulating it you know in the way that Winston was rewriting the the history and things, and it, I just thought it was interesting because um, in our last episode we talked about. Uh, what's it called Fahrenheit 451. And that actually did happen to Ray Bradbury for years. Remember we were talking about how there was like an expurgated version of it published um, through like book clubs and things where they took out anything that they seen that they, uh, they essentially censored it and he didn't know for years and he sued and, and, and won. Um, but what's interesting is that like, you know, you, these are things that you get for very, very low price. So the danger is not that these people are doing it. It's the danger that people who are too lazy or too cheap, too lazy to go to a library or too cheap or, or look at that and say, well, this is a $3 copy and really don't consider the source are susceptible to these sorts of things. You know what this so. also reminds me of? Mm. Don Quixote. Yeah. Remember that that guy did part yes. two before and so then Cervantes decided to have part two actually found in his part two and so people in town had read their exploits but um both Sancho and Don Quixote were like we never did that yeah she's like that it's just weird so what was the feces thing again Someone just wrote about it. Oh, somebody these. just replaced it, which is, like I said, that's such a high school student. Like, for instance, <laughs> so somebody or- edited Orwell's memoir, Down and Out in Paris and London. Here it says, most of the distorted, distorted texts are likely due to ignorance and sloppiness, but at their most radical, the books try to improve Orwell, as with the unauthorized, quote, high school edition of his 1933 memoir. The editing was credited to a Moira appropriate. Get it? Sure. More appropriate. Yeah, gotcha. 
Yeah. She could not be reached for comment. In fact, her existence could not be verified. Um, and what misappropriate self-appointed task, she re- rendered it more, quote, palatable. For, and that actually says it. And it's like uh, an example of her handiwork came when Charlie, a boastful rapist, described how he lured a young woman into his clutches. Come here, my chicken, I called to her. And her version was, come here, I called to her. So in some cases, it's like kind of, uh, you know, but, but apparently people are making money off of it. And, they are you know, making I, money. I was yeah, about to ask. I'm, okay. I'm a brand snob when it comes to certain things like this. I don't like bootleg versions of things. Yeah. It's just, you know, uh, the, the bootleg, uh, bootleg covers of concerts and things are one thing, but like, you know, the, 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 the bootleg version of a movie or something like I like to get things through legitimate means for the most part, um, or, or if it's a legitimately published copy. So if like, it's, it's some like second rate copy of like 1984, I'm going to side eye it, yeah. you know, or, or a book or something like, so when, so I got Northanger Avery for free off of Amazon, but it was through the, it was an Amazon edition of it. Mm. And I double checked to make sure that I had like, you know, the right number of chapters and everything. Cause I was like, wow, this is for free. But then I realized it was, you know, and it was at the Amazon classics edition, which basically is probably more along the lines of like the penguin classics and, you know, others. Cause Jane Austen's essentially in the public domain, I believe. And the reason I think I got it for free, it was, it was with my prime membership okay. that I could read it for free. So, mm-hmm. which you get with some books here and there. So, okay. But I just thought that was an interesting article, and it dovetailed really well with our previous episode. It sure so, did. Yes. Okay. Well, now we're at at an end, friends. Apparently, no one liked our other episodes because they didn't write in. <laughs> I'm sure I'll get lots of hate mail after this one, though, for sure. Well, we're at that moment where Tom reveals what book he has chosen for the next month. So uh, we went realistic and. Satirical with this one. I guess realism was something that we were talking about a little bit. Um, there's a certain amount of realism in, in the book we're going to be reading. There's also a little bit of surrealism, and it takes place in the 20th century and not the 19th. In fact, it takes place um, in the mid 20th century in America in uh, what used to be called, um, I guess, a mental hospital. Oh, no. Sane asylum? I, I don't know. Where know. This is going. We are going to be reading Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. <laughs> okay. Oh, man. I wonder you think I, I was going for the bell jar? <laughs> no, no. I knew where you were going. You knew where I was going. Yeah, the, one Flew uh, Over the we are going over the cuckoo's nest. Oh, with Nurse Hatchet. With Nurse Ratchet. Yeah, Nurse Ratchet. So, and McMurphy. So. Oh, McMurphy. Okay. Well, that is great to hear. I mean, we're all sane down here right yeah as far as we can tell anyway as as we, we are teachers that's true that is true <laughs> We're a little crazy well i guess that's it yeah so uh don't forget to check us out on twitter leave itunes reviews and all of those things please give us feedback um even if it's past episodes i'll steal that from both professor allen and m basically saying like we love feedback on even the oldest episodes because we always love talking about these things with you guys so you know please contribute and as always thank you very much for listening and take care and we'll see you at the pump room yes we will good night good night i've broken with my father Catherine. i may never speak to him again what did he say to you let me instead tell you what i said to him 
I told him that I felt myself bound to you. My honor, my affection, and by a love so strong that nothing he could do could deter me from... From what? Before I go on, I should tell you, there's a pretty good chance he'll disinherit me. I fear I may never be a rich man, Catherine. Please, go on with what you're going to say. Will you marry me, Catherine? Yes. of the respective ages of 26 and 18 is to do pretty well. Catherine and Henry were married, and in due course, the joys of wedding gave way to the blessings of a christening. The bells rang and everyone smiled. No one more so than Eleanor, whose beloved's unexpected accession to title and fortune finally allowed them to marry. I leave it to be settled whether the tendency of this story be to recommend parental tyranny or reward filial disobedience. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.